Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at around 100 pages of the works of great American writers while giving my thoughts on them. I use the Library of America as my source material. So we're going to be beginning a new series today, and therefore that's why we have a new bumper. Um, That bumper is a a Huron and English song i guess i guess the opening bumper will be huron and the closing bumper will be the english version of it it's the huron carol which was actually written by a french jesuit missionary who was among the huron in the later half of the 17th century and i believe he died a martyr and i just thought it was a good pick for this because the hurons do play a role in in the deerslayer um which is, of course, uh, the first novel we're going to be looking at in this series on James Fenimore Cooper. The song also exposes some of the realities of the encounter between the West and Native Americans, First Nations. And and I guess that's why I picked it. It's all also because Cooper was quite religious and his religiosity and his faith come through in his books. So for all those reasons, I chose this text. At least for, I'll do that at least for some of uh, the Cooper's works. When we get maybe into the, his works more about the 19th century, I may change that up into a more uh, kind of a white frontier uh, song, but we'll see. Um, so yeah, so we're beginning a series on James Fenimore Cooper. Um, and we'll be starting with the Deerslayer. As you may know, the the Leather Stocking Tales, which are the tales all about this guy Natto, Natto Bumpo. I can't believe I missed his name for a second. Natto Natty Bumpo, but he has, he goes by all these different names in the books, either Hawkeye or Leather Stocking, as he appears in the Pioneers, or the Deerslayer, as he appears in the Deerslayer. Um, now, the first of these novels to be written was the Pioneers, followed by Last of the Mohicans, and then the prairie and then the pathfinder and the final one was the deerslayer however and his introductions to the deerslayer sort of make this clear that he's he he intends this to be read chronologically at least or at least he opens up that door that's a perfect saying it's a perfectly proper way to read his his novels so i'll be reading them chronologically uh you know via the age of the character natty bump and now he's got a bigger or smaller role in all these these stories, but he does have a significant role in, in at least three of them and two others. He's more of a background character. Um, and then when we're done with the five leather stocking tales, I'll come around and I'll, I'll look at two of his Sina sea novels. Uh, uh, Cooper was a sailor for a period of his life and he wrote several sailors uh, stories, two of them, uh, which really kind of make the front end of the canon of American maritime literature. Actually, there's not that many. I mean, you have Melville, but he comes, he comes a little bit later. So this, this is kind of the opening of the tradition of American maritime literature. But we'll be looking at two of his novels, The Red Rover and The Pilot, and that will be at the end of the series. So I'm really going to go through all of Cooper, uh, at least as far as the Library of America is concerned. So let's talk about Cooper a bit. Uh, James Fenimore Cooper was born in 1789. His father was William Cooper's, and Cooper, and he was a, a bit of a land speculator, and he founded Cooperstown. In fact, you can read an entire book on James Fenimore Cooper's family uh, called, well, one is by, well, actually, you can read two whole books about this. One is The Pioneers by James Cooper, which is largely about Cooperstown, even though it's not named as such. Or you could read uh, Alan Taylor's histor- his history book called William Cooper's Town, which looks into this history and, and uses both William Cooper's life and James Fenimore Cooper's literature as a window into the early American frontier. So um, now Cooper came from a very big family. His family had 13 children and James was one of the younger ones. I think he was 13th or 14th or 12th of the, I think it was 12th of the 13th children. So 
Uh, he, he was kind of popular, but he lost a lot of brothers pretty early in his life, too. Now, the establishment of Cooperstown happened in 1791, and so he lives most of his life, early life, formative years, out in, in Cooperstown on the frontier in his very early developmental stage. In fact, I think the Pioneers basically begins in like 1791 because uh, it's really paralleling what happened in, in Cooperstown. And so he's kind of going back on his own history in a way when he wrote that novel. Now, while he was wealthy and his father had all this land, like 60,000 acres, whatever ridiculous amount um, he was granted, he, he was kind of growing up on the frontiers of upstate New York. So he did have kind of a, a little bit of a, you know, not, not pampered, not like if he was rich and lived in the cities. He, he was still kind of on the frontier. In 1801, so when he's about 12, he was sent to school in Albany. In 1806, he went to the sea, and these experiences would shape some of his earliest novels, particularly sea fiction. In 1811, he married Susan DeLancey, and then he buys a farm near Lake Ostego, which is essentially Cooperstown today. And Lake Ostego is where, is basically Glimmerglass, which is where the Deerslayer takes place. He buys a farm near there, um, and he hopes to retire there. He hopes to live out his life there just basically as kind of a landowner and farmer and and all that but the war of 1812 breaks out and economic difficulties plague him and plague his family and he's finally forced to move to the lands of his wife's family the delancey family he wrote his first novel in 1820 called precaution and in 1821 he wrote the pioneers the first of the leather stocking tales and for the next 25 years he would write numerous novels and we'll be looking at just seven of them in this series but of course he wrote many many more um and Meanwhile, he lived in many places in New York, including New York City for a while. So he's kind of living all around upstate New York, mostly. So he is kind of a, he's a New York writer, clearly. So what else to say about him? Well, he's one of the first generation of kind of American professional writers. I was just, because I, I put my Library of America books by chronological order, and you can kind of just see it looking at it, that you have Charles Brockton Brown. Of course, you have a lot of writings, political writings and stuff, and the founders. But if you start getting into literature, it's, it's, you know, there's Charles Brockton Brown, who might be the, really the first American novelist. Then you have Washington Irving, who, of course, wrote a lot. And Library of America has three volumes of his works. And then it's Cooper. And then after that, of course, you have these, this kind of American Renaissance writer. So he's, he's in many ways even before the American Renaissance, publishing books in the 1820s and 1830s, when there's not much of a domestic fiction producing community at least not ones we we normally remember there's a few plays uh, like the contrast and the coquette um, i forget the author of that name that that's actually a woman writer um but there's not that many of these professional writers around at least not ones we remember anymore so he's he's kind of a in a way he, we're forced to read cooper because he is of he's one of the few voices we have of this period you know that we sort of consider high literature but you know you know his tales are kind of adventure tales too and sometimes it seems they're taught because maybe students will like the adventure tales but then at the same time cooper is known for being very long-winded very wordy i mean there's even times in in the deerslayer when he's supposedly a mature writer where he does things that are almost laughable when you look at him through contemporary i mean modern literary standards like where he'll have a character give a monologue all by himself like he's in a play and actually, now that would be stream of consciousness, of course. But, you know, those kind of awkward moments are in there. And then there's just these long, long descriptions. In the Pioneers, for instance, there's a, like two pages where he's just talking about the, the history and condition of a roof of a building. And that, there's a whole chapter about like a building, a, ho a house. So he's known for that. But I, I think he's worth reading. And he's, he's very interesting on issues of race, on issues of the frontier, and, you know, I think even if it wasn't that he's part of kind of a small crowd, I think we'd still be reading him because he I think he has a lot to tell us um, to this day. And, and his stories are fun. It, it's it's one of those things I think modern sensibilities for reading don't really allow this, you know, in the days where there's so much competition for people's attention in film and especially television and Netflix and all these things. You know, novelists try to be a little bit more concise. But. You know, in his days, you know, novels are what you had. So spending 20, 30 hours with the Deerslayer in Lake Ostego while he's thrown away Huron, you know, and 
meet Judith Hutter and all these people. You could get away with that in those days because, you know, that was what people could do. They could just sit around and read, right? So I don't know, maybe I'm projecting a bit too much about um, what reality was, but I just get the sense that there was a little bit less sensitivity about kind of the, you know, the, the, the patience of the novel, I think, would, is something that sets off modern readers a lot. I mean, I think the events of the Deerslayer would be like two chapters in a lot of modern novels. So the novel we'll be looking at today was the last published of the Leatherstocking Tales, but it's actually the first chronologically. Um, so we're going to look at this one first. It was published in 1841. It is, in a way, a prequel to The Last of the Mohicans in that we, we find out, th for instance, where he gets the name Hawkeye from. I don't know if that was retconned or if Cooper always knew where he was going to get that name, but he's known as Hawkeye in The Last of the Mohicans, but here he's known as the Deerslayer. How did he get that name? Well, that's established. His friendship with, with Chingachgook is established and, you know, kind of where his skills are. I mean, it's just one event. The whole novel of the Deerslayer takes place over something like three or four days at most. It, it's a very contained story, even though it seems very lengthy and, and wordy. And it seems a lot happens, but it's not that much time actually passes in the, in the course of the novel. So it's, it's presented as kind of this defining moment of this young frontiersman's life. Okay, so most, I don't want to say most, but it seems some of the commentary on Cooper recently has been very critical of how he presents Indians. And, and I'll be getting into that a lot, especially in, in The Deerslayer and Last of the Mohicans. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is Cooper was attacked for actually being too kind to the Indians. And he actually addresses this in the preface to the Leatherstocking Tales. Um, and I have it here in the Library of America edition. Um, he says, it has been objected to these books that they give a more favorable picture of the red man than he deserves. The writer ap apprehends that much of this objection arises from the habits of those who have made it. One of his critics on the appearance of his first work in which Indian characters was portrayed objected that its characters were Indian in the school of Heckwelder rather than the school of nature. These words quite probably contain the substance of the true answer to the objection. Heckle Welder was an ardent, benevolent missionary bent on the good of the red man and seeing in him one who has the sole reason and characteristics of a fellow being. The critic is understood to have been very, a very distinguished agent of the government, one very familiar with Indians, as they are seen at councils to treat for the sale of their land. There little or none of their domestic qualities come into play, and where indeed their evil passions are known to have the fullest scope. As just would it be to draw conclusions to the general state of American society from the scenes of the capital as to support that the negotiating of these treaties is a fair picture of Indian life. It is the privilege of all writers of fiction, more particularly when their works aspire to the elevation of romance, to present the bu'adil of the characters to the reader. This is what this it is which constitutes poetry and to suppose that the red man is to be represented only by the squalid misery or of the degraded moral state that certainly more or less belongs to his condition is we apprehend taking a very very narrow view of the author's privilege such criticism would have deprived the world of even homer okay so he's he's he kind of defends it by saying i'm, I'm kind of i am giving an idealist account but that's author's privilege to do that and he's saying that there is diversity among the Indians. And now Cooper certainly sees Indians as historical in his works. He, he sees them at the tail end of history. He does name, name one of his books, The Last of the Mohicans, establishing kind of an end of their line. And the Indians we run into are beaten down, pushed to the frontier under great pressure of from white people and invaders and at, often at war. So all these pressures... And of course, not, not, nothing that is addressed directly in anything I've read yet from Cooper, but you know, 90% of the population of these communities were destroyed by disease prior to the, the events in these stories. Now, if we go back to books like The Death and Rebirth of the Seneca by, by Wallace, which that's a really great book, by the way, and it, and it goes into the, the history and the experiences of, of the Iroquois after... And you're quite irrelevant here uh, because it is upstate New York we're talking about. And Cooper's experience with the Indians would have been shaped by the post-revolutionary Iroquois situation in, you know, in, in upstate New York. 
the New York frontier. So this book, The Death and the Rebirth of the Seneca, shows how it looks focused on the Seneca, but it it's kind of can be applied to the, the Iroquois more broadly. And, you know, how they enter the Revolutionary War on the side of the British. I, I think it's the, is it the Oneida or the Mohawk joined with the Americans? Maybe it was the Oneida. Mostly, though, the Iroquois joined with uh, the British. They win a lot of battles. They're actually quite victorious. And then at the end of the war, the British basically sell them out and give their land over to the new American nation in the Treaty of Paris of 1783. So all these Iroquois lands get gobbled up into the American empire almost immediately. So this idea of America becoming an empire is, is wrong. America was an empire from day one, from the time of the Treaty of Paris, right? When that broke down that wall of the proclamation line of 1783. And, you know, remember your like first grade history. You'll, you'll remember the story. The revolution broke down that line, allowed the settlers like William Cooper to come into the West, take this land. And what happened to, what happened to the Seneca? What happened to the other Iroquois? Well, they got pushed into reservations. Now, Wallace in Death and Rebirth of Seneca calls these slums in the wilderness. Right, these places where they lived. And then he talks about all the social problems that came along with this. And when when Cooper here was talking about this degraded state of the Indians, that's partially what he's responded to. And that's that's what he knew about Indians his his whole life. Were these people who had been defeated militarily, well not really defeated militarily, but defeated politically, essentially, pushed off their land, shoved into ghettos, shoved into slums, reservations, and then, you know, and humiliated. And that's certainly, I think, shaping part of his perspective here. Now, the rebirth part, if you want to read Wallace, and again, I recommend it, the, the rebirth part has to do with the rise of Chief Cornplanter and Handsome Lake and his religion and, and what came in the later, in, you know, into the 19th century of how they kind of rebuilt community and rebuilt their, their, you know, their society in the aftermath of this, this horrendous defeat. So all that is going on in the backdrop of, of Cooper's depiction of the Indians. So, okay, I, I just want to get that out of the way because we're going to talk a lot about the Indians. Now, what Indians are we dealing with here? Well, they're called Domingo, which is a pejorative term for them. They're, they're called the Iroquois. But during the, the context of this novel, in fact, the Iroquois were allied with the British colonists against the French. So by the Iroquois, they really mean Iroquois speaking. Uh, the Iroquois language speaking, and the people they're actually encountering are the Huron, and who were allied with the the French, uh, and I think they were sort of always allied with the French, all from all the way back to the 17th century. And again, go back to your U.S. history; you'll know about all these wars in the colonies, which were extensions of European wars, and then they ended up getting fought out. And in Native Americans pick sides in these conflicts, hoping to get different gains. And you know, and the Iroquois were particularly adept at playing both sides uh, against the, the, each other to try to create a space for their independence and, and opportunity there. So we're we're dealing with the Huron on the one hand. Now, Chingakuk, who is Deerslayer's friend, and then Deerslayer himself are associated with the Delaware, right? So they're also kind of on the British side of things or the, the British colonists side in that, in the war. And we, we have a we have a very small cast of characters in this novel, so it's not many to remember. Um, we have five white people. We have Deerslayer himself, who's a young frontier frontiersman, raised mostly by Indians among the Delaware, and now he's setting off on his own on his first war path. It's set during King George's War, which is the war of Austrian secession as fought in the New World. So that's that's Deerslayer, Natty Bumpo or Nathaniel Bumpo. He's he encounters and he starts traveling with this guy Henry March or Hurry Harry, and I'll just refer to him as Hurry or Hurry Harry uh, in in my episodes. I'll probably rarely refer him to as Henry March. He does he is sometimes called Mister Marsh or or March, but not very often. It's usually just Hurry Harry. He's Better looking than, and that big deal is made of him being better looking than Dean Slayer. But he's, and he's a little bit more experienced in kind of the ways of the world. But he's, he's also on the younger side of things. You have Hutter, who 
is kind of an egg starting out as a more enigmatic character living in Ostwego Lake or Glimmerglass Lake as which is the setting of, of this novel and hurry Harry's going to meet him because he's basically courting Hutter's daughter Judith and so th then we also meet the daughters of Hutter who are Judith and and oh sorry I'm slipping my mind here it's actually pretty embarrassing it's he uh, I should have not forgot that but uh, she's a, she's an important character so those are our white characters here um, and there then then we have Chingachgook who is a Delaware actually actually I think he's a Mohican raised by the Delaware so as it turns out he's actually the last of the Mohicans but that that's for the next novel and he's he's also young never had experience in war and he's kind of going off on his first war path along with Deerslayer and then we have Hist Hist is is basically Chingachgook's uh, the woman he's courting so we have a couple courtships going on in this novel and most of our characters are young really with the exception of Hutter and then then we have this kind of unknown number of, of Huron who are kind of hanging out here because of the war so those are our characters there's not many to understand so it's it doesn't really hurt us to go through them and there's a few others but those are the main characters we need to know about so the the first chapter of the Deerslayer is about law and the frontier. In a way, and basically the entire chapter is a dinnertime conversation between Hurry Harry, Henry March, and the Deerslayer, Natty Bumpo, or as in the other stories, he'll be called Hawkeye or Leatherstocking, or it's just kind of like the old man in the, in the prairie. So we, we get the setting, and this is something I think Cooper's actually quite good at. I, I kind of like it. And this is the thing that maybe annoys some people today. But he gives these kind of panoramic historical snapshots of the world he's in. And, and he does that here in this chapter, too. And we find we're in colonial New York in 1740. We're told the stories cover the year 1740 to 1745. And I don't quite know what he means by that because the... The novel itself only takes place over like four days, but I, I think he might be talking about the epilogue because there's a short little epilogue where we kind of follow up on some of the surviving characters a few years in the future. So maybe that's what he means. But essentially, it's in 1740, which is in the early phases of, of this war, this King George's War, or the War of Spanish Secession. Oh, sorry, the War of Austrian Secession. We're clearly in a frontier region. And I, I'm re, I'm re, I know why, I know now why environmental historians have have kind of been interested in cooper because cooper does have although perhaps not a not an ecologist certainly but he has kind of an ecological eye to some of the events and the changes going on especially in the pioneers so there's this famous scene in the pioneers where they're shooting these birds who are just flooding the sky because there's like an endless number of them and they've got this line here whatever may be the changes produced by man the eternal round of the seasons is unbroken Summer and winter, seed time and harvest return in their stated order with a sublime precision, affording the man one of the noblest of all occasions. He enjoys improving the higher laws of his far-reaching mind, encompassing the laws that control their exact uniformity and calculating their never-ending revolutions. Centuries of summer suns have warmed the tops of the same noble oaks and pines, sending their heats even to the tenacious roots where voices were heard calling to each other in the depths of the forest of which the leafy surface lay bathed in the brilliant light of a cloudless day in June, while the trunks of the trees rose in gloomy grandeur in the shades below. It's kind of nice. And all this is before we meet any of our characters. I actually relish it. I like it. Um, now, in this chapter, essentially... Hurry Harry and Deerslayer have three conversations and it's something Cooper likes to do a lot is establishing distinctions between really mirror images of people having two characters really reflecting two sides of, of an issue or a debate or, or a character trait and so we get it right from the beginning so there's no reason a reader should not be clear about this distinction that Cooper is trying to make between Harry Hurry Harry and the, and the Deerslayer first is the question, is it brave or commendable to kill a deer or a doe? Specifically, not just a deer, but a doe. He 
He says, hurry, says, come to your slayer, fall to and prove that you have a Delaware stomach and say that you have a Delaware ed- education. Fall to, lad, and prove your manhood on this poor devil of a doe with your teeth as you've done with your rifle. And I guess sir, he wants to eat this venison. And his reply is, nay, nay, hurry. There's a little manhood in killing a doe and that too out of season, though there might be something in bringing down a painter or a catamount. The Delawares have given me a name, not so much on account of a bold heart as on account of my quick eye and active foot. They may not be any cowardice in overcoming a deer, but certain there's no great valor. Then they go on and talk about murder in general. And he confesses, the deer slayer confesses he hasn't murdered anyone. That His name really just refers to a skill in hunting deer, not in killing men. And he hasn't ever done it. Uh, and then we get to a debate essentially about murder in the in in the specific um and i guess well deerslayer's point of view on murder is it only should be really to be done in, in the context of war when self-defense when one's life is at risk even if if even then hurry harry is much more practical i guess about his views on murder and then we get murder in the specific and we learn through this conversation we learn of another frontiersman named Hen- tom hutter who served by legend, legend says, this guy served with Captain Kidd as a pirate. And he's currently living in the frontier with his two daughters with this kind of treasure load of booty. One daughter, Judith, has caught the eye of of Hurry Harry, who threatens to kill any man who marries Judith. Now this grows into a conversation on the morality of murder and the place of the law in the frontier. And it's, it's rather fascinating. I hate to quote so much because Cooper is so, I guess, long-winded, to put it nicely. Um, but here's what Hurry says. He says, Besides, when we live beyond law, we must be the judges and executioners. And if a man should be found dead in the woods, who is there to say who slew him, even admitting that the colony took the matter into hands and made a stir about it? And he replies... I know we live in the woods. This is like a page later. He gets to his full response, but he says, I know we live in the woods, hurry, and are thought to be beyond human laws, but perhaps we are so, in fact, whatever it may be in right, but there is a law and a lawmaker that rules across the whole continent. He that flies in the face of either need not call me friend. So he's saying that there's there's a higher law, and certainly the religious law is a big part of it, and Deerslayer is revealed to be a fairly... Uh, religious character now overarching everything they're talking about here is the the is the delaware indians in their ways deer swear deer slayer understands the delaware indians intimately he knows less about the huron but he, he sort of thinks he knows about indians and he often steps in on this and from the deer slayer's point of view there is kind of a cultural relativism to a degree that there are certain things that make sense for the Indians to do it. And just because we're in the frontier doesn't mean we should be like them necessarily. That we, 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 we almost want to be held to a higher moral standard. But he's not judging Indians as, as sort of backward. It's it's more morally backward, I mean. But it's 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 kind of almost a cultural relativism, I want to say. Uh, so so it's kind of sophisticated and and you know it's it's a thing we're gonna come back to, you know, about this. But you know, the ways of the Indians, especially with things like scalping, right? This it comes up a lot with this issue of scalping. And from Hurry Hutter's part of point of view, or Hurry Harry's point of view, if if and Hutter too for that matter, if, if we're gonna be scalped by them, we might as well scalp them first and make a make a dollar from it. There's there's no moral at more moral crime in doing that. And Deerslayer won't do that, you know, because he does believe there's this broader law, this relig- almost this religious law. And we find out in this chapter too that he's a Mor- Morvian. And I don't really know that much about the, the Morvian church. I, all I know is that they were the Bohemian Protestants of John Huss, I think. And then they fled to Germany and then they, they eventually, in the 18th century, sort of had a bit of a revival in, in the United States. But I can't really speak to their theology that much. But that's that's in the Slayer's background as as well. So the whole chapter is basically this conversation they're having, and then they, they're kind of setting off on, on their way. The main plot points we learn is essentially they're going to see and find this guy, Thomas Hutter, who lives on this Lake Glimmerglass, 
and with his two daughters, one of whom um, he wants to to marry. Hurry, hurry, Harry wants to marry, and that that's kind of how they got into the murder conversation in the first place. Because he says like, "I'll kill anyone who who marries her." All right. So that's what it is, and it, it seems they met along the way or something. It's um, there's a lot of details. It's hard to keep track of them all, but it, it seems they kind of met along the way, and they're just traveling together because he has to go there anyways to meet his comrade Shingachguk, and we don't really find that out till later, anyways. But anyways, the most important thing, I guess, in chapter one is how is this distinction between these two characters, right? And especially with their attitude towards the Indians. Deerslayer understands them, has lived with them, basically was raised by the Delaware. And Hurry Harry just kind of accepts all these cliches about the the so-called Redskins. And so uh, with that, we can move on to chapter two. This chapter, in a way, is a little bit more about the skills and the technologies of the frontier, um, although it's kind of peppered throughout the whole book. Um, this is really about them just sort of traveling uh, through through these lands. And this virgin land is described as they take a canoe into the land. And this whole theme, this whole issue of quote-unquote virgin land is incredibly problematic in all of American literature and in American history, right? Because, of course, the vast majority of the population of Native people died due to diseases not long after European contact. And so lands that centuries earlier would have been cultivated, would have been uh, had villages and had people living there and even cities in cases like Kyokyo, well, that collapsed long before European contact those places would have been retaken by, by quote-unquote wilderness, right? And it also is problematic because it somehow presupposes proper land use, a European value about land use, that what might look to European eyes to be virgin or native land wouldn't have been from the Indian point of view because it would have been something they were, they were using actively for, for economic reasons. So there's, there's a lot of good history on this. I, I suggest you look at like William Cronin's book on, on New the New England woods that, that gets into some of these issues. So here's what Deerslayer says when he comes to uh, this land. He says, this is grand, tis solemn, tis an education of itself to look upon, not a tree disturbed, not even by redskin hand, as I can discover, and everything left to the ordering of the Lord to live and die according to their own designs and laws. Hurry, your Judith ought to be a moral and well-disposed young woman if she has passed half the time you mention in the center of a spot so favored. So that's that's a bit interesting because here we have an idea of kind of environmentalism, that Judith must be a good person because she was raised in this, this kind of frontier land. So we... We end up arriving at Thomas Hutter's castle at some point. It's posited inside a lake and it's well protected from Indian attacks, but there's no one there. There's really no one at this. It's this. It's called the castle. It's, it's really kind of a cabin or just a house. But since it's on this shoal inside the lake, it, it's hard for Indians to really get at him. So he kind of designed it to be well protected from, from, from Indians. Um, but there's no one there. So they're out like hunting or something. So... But what we really feel in this chapter is just how acutely the skills and practical knowledges and technologies shape the lives of those on the frontier. The frontiers people need to be jacks of all traits. And, and I notice that it's not frontiers men because we actually have Judith and, and Hetty here. And they are as much a part of the frontier as her father and, and these comrades who, who, who come to, to help them out. So, you know, they, they are all part of this process of, of of transforming this frontier into a settlement, at least in Cooper's eyes. And, you know, the, these these different technologies play a role, like the fort or the, the canoe or the ark. The ark is a big technology played here. The, the rifle, the gun, and these are all very intimate. They, all these characters have very intimate relationships with these technologies. And, of course, the frontiers, may, uh, frontiers person needs to be this jack-of-all-traits. Now, impartially, though, there's an interesting moment in this chapter where we find that this borderline between civilization and the frontier is partially defined by the lack of names. 
of things and by poor maps as well. It says, here Hurry laughed heartily, such tricks being particularly grateful to the set of men who dreaded the approaches of civilization as a curtailment of their own lawless empire. The egregious errors that existed on the maps of the day, all of which were made in Europe, were, moreover, a standing topic of ridicule among them. For if they had not science enough to make any better of them, better themselves, they had sufficient local information to detect the gross blunders contained in those that existed. Anyone who will take the trouble to compare these unanswerable evidence of the topological skills of our fathers a century ago with the more accurate sketches of our own time will at once perceive that the men of the woods had sufficient justification for all their criticism on the branch of the skill of the colonial governments, which did not at all hesitate to place a river or lake or degree or two out of the way, even when they lay within a day's march in, of the inhabited parts of the country. So it's kind of a, 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 there's a lot to sort of unpack in there. One is, you know, the difference between the, the, the knowledge created by cartographers and, and geographers and those known by frontiersmen. The one is much more vernacular, if not scientifically rooted. Um, and then the other is that these frontiers were just kind of terra incognita to a lot of these map makers. And yet they're very important where these, where this lake is or this river is. It's life and death for these people on, on, in, the, in these regions, in these frontier areas. So in chapter three, they, they discuss the fighting over the lands. And a little bit to the degree that Indians contribute to the violence. And once again, we're reminded of the prejudice of, of Hurry. Quote, Hurry had all the prejudices and the antipathies of a white hunter who generally regards the Indian as a sort of natural competitor and not infrequently as a natural enemy. As a matter of course, he was loud, clamorous, dogmatical, and not very, ar and not very argumentative. Deerslayer, on the other hand, manifests a very different temper proving by the moderation of his language, the fairness of his views, and the simplicity of his distinctions that he possessed every disposition to hear reason, a strong innate desire to do justice, and an ingenious ingenuousness that was singularly indisposed to have recourse to sophisms, to maintain an argument, or to defend a prejudice. Now these are all things we learn pretty quickly as we get to know these characters, but here Cooper is kind of stating outright his views on uh, both Hurry and Deerslayer and their prejudices and how they, they argue and how they, you know, and how they think through their ideas. That's a big part of it. So Hurry's prejudice comes out of a, really an unwillingness to really reflect on and think about his place in the world, really having no philosophical bearing. So he's just kind of a brute, essentially. And Deerslayer is, is much more reflective. And where that comes from, it, it's not entirely clear yet. Does it come from his Delaware upbringing or just his nature, just his character? Um, and this quickly gets into the discussion of, of violence again, which is something that picks up, it's sort of picking up a conversation from the first chapter where Hurry's argument pretty much boiled down to, you know, the Indians are going to scalp or are going to kill me, so I might as well kill them, right? It's not, there's really morality doesn't enter into it. But here they talk about specifically about scalping. And Hurry defends scalping just like, just as an act of taking trophies from animals, right? And Deerslayer makes a distinction between men and animals, which apparently Hurry's not really willing to do, at least in terms of, of Indians. But then the argument quickly comes back down to the issues of race and tradition and, and sort of culture. And so here's what Hurry says. He says, As for scalping or even skinning a savage, I look upon them pretty much the same as cutting off the ears of a wolf for the bounty or stripping a bear of its hide. And then you're out significantly as to taking the pole of a red skin in the hand, seeing that the very colony has offered a bounty for the head, all the same as it pays for wolves, ears, and crows' heads. And Deerslayer's response is, I do not deny that there are tribes among the Indians that are naturally perverse and wicked, as there are nations among the whites. Now, I accept the Mingos. Now, the Mingos are the Huron. The... Now, I count the Mingos as belonging to the first, and the Frenchers and the Canadas to the last. In the state of lawful warfare, we have gotten late, got lately got into. It is a duty to keep down all compassionate feelings. So far as life goes, either again either, and when it comes to scalps, it's a very different matter. 
And then he, Deerslayer kind of goes on and talks about law a little bit in a, in a rather interesting way. And he talks about how, where we get our law from. And, and we're on the frontier here, so there is kind of nat- nature's law. But ultimately, our laws come from, from the king and through the king to the colony and from the colony to us. But overarching all this are the laws of God. And he says, I hold to white man's respecting white laws as long as they do not come across the track of a law coming from a higher authority and for a red man to obey his own redskin usages under the same privilege. But tis useless talking as if each man will think for himself and have his say agreeable to his thoughts. And then he tries to get out of the conversation a little bit because it's, it's getting a little bit awkward um, and, and he doesn't really want to break up this friendship too much over these issues. Um, and there's a couple points here where we might want to question Deerslayer's judgment, um, especially coming soon in, in chapter six. There's, there's a there's a major moment where you're thinking, you know, are you not standing to your principles? And it might be because of his youth and it just might be uh, his practicality. So now Hurry sees a buck and tries to kill it. And Deerslayer scorns him for wasting for wasting bullets and, and again trying to kill an animal they didn't need and saying he only kills animals for utility and need despite his name despite the name he's been given by the Delaware he only kills for for need now throughout this chapter these morality issues these cultural differences and the deep differences between Hurry Harry and Deerslayer on fundamental issues of morality and civilization on the frontier are developed at length in this chapter and also in this chapter, we get many more references to Deerslayer's unappealing physical appearance. Even Hurry straight up calls him ugly here. And, that, you know, it's not commonly you'll have two men, you know, one calling the other one ugly. So, you know, I don't really have an image of the Deerslayer in my head so much, um, except kind of from the clothing, perhaps. But apparently he's really ugly. And then when they meet these women, Judith and Hetty, one is very beautiful and one is more plain and... And they're kind of matched up initially based on their their appearances, their outward appearances. Um, but I just um, it's it's something that Cooper really makes a big point of is, is how kind of unappealing physically the Deerslayer is. And then they, they, they kind of actually make some jokes about Judith. It's kind of a, it's funny at the end because there's a bit of a little bit of humor here. Hurry says something like, you know, Judith is so fine and dainty or whatever. She'd be working on her hair and, and Hurry kind of says the same thing that she'd be, you know, expect her in the house, right? Uh, then working in the traps. And then she exposes herself and she was, she, she kind of overheard their, their kind of gossiping about her. So, you know, by Cooper's standards, it's a bit of a joke. I guess, or at least an awkward situation. But the major question we need to ask in this chapter is, is simply how much Deerslayer is a racist towards the Indians and how much Cooper is, I guess. And Cooper really makes a lot of efforts, both in his preface and in these chapters, to make a distinction between this, this kind of generalizing of the Indian experience and making distinctions based on rather different Indian cultures. So he at least is... Cooper and the Deerslayer are very aware of these differences, and not everyone is. Everyone just kind of, a lot of people just kind of lump these together, these cultures together. Now, Hurry clearly is a racist towards the native people, but the fact that Deerslayer accepts these deep cultural differences, he still makes ju- judgments based on race. He uses the term redskin all the time. He does seem to acknowledge that they have a different God. At one point in the novel, he does say to Chingachgook, his comrade, that you'll be Christianized someday, but he doesn't really see that as an option for for most native people he he meets. And there's there's a point where he kills one of these Indians in a in a in a, in a skirmish, and he talks about how he's going to go to the Happy Hunting Ground, which I always thought was like a Lakota thing or kind of more Plains Indian. So maybe I don't know if that was something among the Huron. I don't remember it. I, I know a little bit about the Huron Day of the Dead from the Jesuit relations documents. Um, which are kind of fun to read if you if you haven't looked at them. But I, I never I didn't know the happy hunting ground was was a was a Huron thing. But it's it's used here. Cooper uses it here, and maybe he's misplacing it. But he still does kind of see that there are certain kind of Indian traits. But he respects them. So he's more of a multiculturalist, I think. So he's the multiculturalist on the American frontier, and Hurry's the white supremacist. Now both have have kind of the racialism, I guess, is what I'm trying to say.
So, chapter four. Um, uh, this now in this chapter and the next few are, are sort of set on the ark. So they they sort of, they visited the cabin before, and now they're on the ark, and they're they're kind of actually I think they go kind of between the ark and the cabin for a little bit. Uh, you got to kind of pay attention. You almost want to have a map when you're reading this book, a map of Lake Oswego and where everything is, even though it's closely. Um, even though it's a close location, you kind of sometimes have to pay attention, close reading to keep track of where everyone is at all the time, at all times. But anyways, this chapter and the next few are, are, are kind of mostly about getting to know the Hutter family. So the two travelers greet the Hutter family and it's Deerslayer, who's a real stranger. Of course, Judith and Hetty and Thomas Hutter know Hurry Harry. Uh, so it's Deerslayer who's a real stranger, and therefore he's he's the one who always to be introduced. We learn a little bit more about the situation they're in. The English colonists are in a war with France and various Indian tribes. It's King George's War, which, as I, I said before, it was the North American front of of the War of Austrian Secession, which was fought between Prussia and Austria over lands in Central Europe, but also over the right of Maria Theresa to rule Austria as a woman. Prussia used that as an excuse to go to war and try to seize some territory in Silesia. And this is all from your Western Civ class, of course. Um, the uh, Britain and France got into that war and therefore it got ended up being fought out in the frontiers and in the in the american colonies this is deerslayer's first war and he actually seeks out conflict because he wants to go on his first war path it's kind of and the same for chingachgook this is kind of a coming of age event for both of these characters the french and the british uh were fighting and the french were allied with the wananaki confederacy which included huron remnants and the hurons were traditional french allies and the british were allied with uh, the iroquois so that's just a little bit confusing because they often refer to the Huron as Iroquois and that, that's because they're Iroquois speaking and they're kind of of the same broader cultural group, but they're not part of the Iroquois Confederacy, which was allied with the, with the British. The Delaware apparently also are, are allied with the British. Um, okay, so Thomas Hutter is, is not really in. It's just the women, Judith Hutter and Hetty. And Hutter arrives a little bit later. And we witness a fascinating little conversation about names and the frontier and how liquid they can be. And this question comes up of like, what, what's what's your name? Let me find it. Well, first, Hetty says, tell me your names and I may tell you your character. Now, if we take that seriously, right? Deerslayer, that's his character. Later on, he takes the name Hawkeye, right? Because he's a good shot. Right? It'll be he Leatherstocking. Because I suppose of what he wears. So these reflect him as a frontiersman, right? I don't quite get a sense from Hetty what it means. Now, now Hetty is a bit dull. I mean, she's not bright. And the characters often refer to her as kind of slow-witted or dim-witted. I would say she's very literal and not the most creative thinker. And she tends to see things at face value. She's not, like, disabled, I don't think. Now, Judith has biblical connotations to it hurry harry you know and in fact i think one character at some point even says something like hurry harry he always hurries you know he's he's it's his name reflects him so that this seems to be carried on and then floating tom tom thomas hutter is called floating tom because he, he he spends a lot of time in this ark and he lives on this lake So there, there's actually a couple pages where they go back and forth about, about names. There's some truth in this. This is what the Deerslayer says. There's some truth in this. I'll not deny, though it often fails. Men are deceived by other men's characters and frequently give them names they by no means deserve. You can see the truth of it in the Mingo names, which in their tongue signify the same thing as the Delaware names, at least so they tell me. For when little of the tribe... So for I know little of that tribe unless it by report, and no one can tell... No one can say they are as honest or as upright a nation. I put no great dependence, therefore, on names. And then we learn his name. His name is Nathaniel Bumpo. But he's almost never referred to that in, in the novels. He has a, kind of a different name for in every book he's in. So in this one, it's Deerslayer. 
but kind of how the names are kind of liquid and, and fluid in the frontier and the meanings are a bit fluid. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Deerslayer talks about his Indian friend who's coming. And this bothers Hutter when Thomas Hutter shows up. He doesn't like the idea that an Indian is coming. And he, like Hurry Harry, just kind of lumps them all together and doesn't quite appreciate the distinctions between the Delaware and the, and the Huron. And so forth, he doesn't really like the fact that an Indian is coming to, to share their, their adventure. And we learn about why they're on this mission. And, and it's kind of two things. One is they want to go on their, their first war path. They're, they're eager to start their life of adventure and, and get their first kills and, and all that kind of stuff. Go on their first war path. But Chinchgachkuk is also after his, his betrothed. He just hints at it here, saying, like, our main goal is this to just go on this first warpath. But Chinchgachkuk has another goal. And we learn later on it's it's uh, Watawat or, or Histahist, who his betrothed, who he's trying to basically secure and, and make sure she's safe because she's she's with the Huron right now. We know that. Um, OK, so. Deerslayer looks at a moccasin Judith found and identifies it as as an enemy's uh, moccasin, which again shows you how the Hutters really are oblivious about the distinctions between Indian groups. But from this, they talk a little bit about their situation and the trouble they're in. Deerslayer warns that their positions aren't really defensible. But as they're talking, they are attacked. And it's not much of an attack. They basically are able to, to scare off the attackers. But it shows that there's a belligerent enemy nearby that, you know, has violent intention towards them and that they're outnumbered, you know, almost certainly. So the situation is that they're on this shoal, the, the castle's on this shoal, on this lake. And now as difficult as their situation is, they also know that it could be a long siege. Despite having numbers, the Indians only feign an attack. They don't really have the the lift capacity, if you will, to attack straight up the, the, the castle. They don't have the number of canoes. And so a big early part of this mission is to try to secure these canoes so they can't be used by the Huron. And then they, they seem not to want to waste ammunition. The castle is too far away from the shore and it's too dangerous to approach by water to be in rifle range. So they're, they're kind of hesitating. And so that, that kind of does it for chapter four. Um, chapter five... As this chapter opens, Cooper takes on the issue of gender relations in a frontier environment. Quote, as a matter of course, Hutter felt the truth the deepest. His daughters having a habitual reliance on his resources and knowing too little to appreciate fully all the risks they ran while his male companions were at liberty to quit him at any moment they saw fit. And quote, right away, he says, Hutter feels himself at risk because he's surrounded by women who don't know what they're in at. Now, I don't know if that's accurate. I, I think, it, you know, there, there might be some truth to it the way his, uh, Hetty and Judith are characterized. But, you know, did the real historical frontiers woman have these limitations? I'm, I'm not sure. But to, cer to a certain degree, Hutter's trying to impose some kind of separate spheres environment here. And... Maybe he's being a bit anachronistic. Cooper, I mean, is being a bit anachronistic of, of kind of having the separate spheres idea. Of course, that was the main gender ideology by the 1840s, at least for middle class folk. Um, but here we have Judith and, and Hetty sent to prepare meals. Now, interestingly, as they talk about their plans to defend themselves, Judith accused Hurry of not being reliable in combat like Deerslayer obviously is. So up to this point, we've we sort of assumed that Hutter is going to, not Hutter, Judith Hutter and Hurry Harry are going to end up together, are going to marry. And he even says in the very first chapter, I'll kill a man who tries to get in my way. But this is the first evidence we have of Judith showing her contempt for Hurry and some of his negative characteristics. And despite his comparative physical beauty, he lacks a lot of other characteristics that would make him an appealing mate uh, or companion in this frontier setting. The decision is made by Hutter and Hurry to attack the Indians rather than to simply hold the fort. And why they will do this? Well, they think they can attack the village and expose them when the men are gone and, and basically scalp a bunch of children and women take their scalps and get the bounty paid for it. And they assume 
the Huron camp will have many women and children who can be easily scalped. They, they can't, won't be able to put up the defense. So basically they're saying we should just murder as many women and children as we can and make as much money as we can from the situation. And their morality is that simply the Indians would do the same to them. Oh, but there was something I forgot to mention, I guess, earlier when there was this comparison between the scalps of Indians and the scalps of, or the, the furs of animals is that there's bounties out for, for wolves and other animals and as well, it seems, from the colonial government. And so there is this kind of war on nature that's part of the colonial conquest of, of these frontier regions. And a big part of that is going to be the war on wolves, in which the U.S. government had bounty on wolves, I think, up into the 1950s at, at various points. That's one of the reasons wolves were pretty much driven to extinction in North America, and they've only recently begun to come back. And I urge you to read the book Vicious, um, which is really good on this issue. So it's, it's called Wolves and Men in America. It's by an environmental historian named named Coleman. Okay, so um, there's a lot of racial language, a lot of deep racial hostility in this section, in this chapter as well, about, um, you know, at one point, Hurd even says, that's, you've made a vast mistake, old man, in calling savage blood human blood at all. I think no more of a redskin scalp than I do a pair of wolf ears. But uh, the decision is sort of made that they're going to go off and try to try to kill a bunch of Indian women. Deerslayer opposes taking scalps. He understands racial differences on this moral issues, but he refuses to take part in it. And again, presenting his whiteness. So, and that's why I think it's very complicated to say that like Hurry's the racist and, and Deerslayer is not, because Deerslayer does see deep racial differences, and he actually presents his own moral superiority through his Christianity and to a degree his whiteness. Hetty is very upset to hear that her father may be taking the scalps of women and children, and he replies simply that they're at war and this is necessary and it's kind of us us or them. After dinner, they discuss relationships, and Hutter sees Hurry and Judith getting married in the future, but suggests that Hetty can marry Deerslayer, perhaps. And he suggests he's basically suggesting them based on physical attractiveness alone and saying basically the good-looking ones will get married and the bad-looking ones will get married. And I actually saw an article that, that actually this, there's some truth to this in the fact that people tend to marry in, in their own, um, you know, their own range, usually. Good-looking people marry good-looking people. And, um, you know, I guess that's just, that's just life. So, but at the same time, though, while this is going on, we see Judith moving very rapidly away from Hurry and developing an attraction, or at least a respect, for, for Deerslayer. And they have a nice conversation at the end of the chapter where she says, I'm glad the ice is broke between us. They say that sudden friendship leads to long enmities, but I don't believe it will turn out so with us. I know, I know not how it is, but you are the first man I ever met who did not seem to wish to flatter, to wish to ruin, wish my ruin, to be an enemy in disguise. Never mind, say nothing to hurry, and another time we'll talk again. So it's kind of sweet. She She's kind of exposing her uh, attraction for them. But we have a few important tensions in Chapter 5. One is over morality and, and war and profit. We got Hurry and Hutter who want to kill for bounty, and Deerslayer willing to kill for war, certainly, but not willing to just murder civilians um, for because of a bounty. Both point out the cultural differences. So that's another tension is the deep cultural differences between whites and Indians. But Hutter and Hurry say that basically what's good for the goose is good for the gander, while Deerslayer holds on to his more varying educations. Um, the other tension here is between parental authority and the parental wishes and the wishes of the children in terms of marriage. Judith seems destined to, to marry Hurry, but she also reveals she has more values than someone like Deerslayer. And there's also... Some suggestions in this chapter that Hetty is actually interested more in Hurry. Um, so we kind of what our expectations are, are sort of beginning to be undermined here. And then get to chapter six. Um, they arrive at Hutter's house after you know being gone for a while that, to the castle on the shoal, and they drop the women off and. 
their original goal when they set off again is to basically collect the canoes that are on the shore of the lake. And their goal is to take control of these canoes so they won't be able to be used by the Indians against them as basically the lift capacity to attack and, and, siege, and seize the, the castle. But while they perform this operation, they see lights from a camp and they said, these must be the women and children. The men will be gone. Hutter and Hurry decide to go there in order to take their scalps, to just, you know, seize the moment. Deerslayer is divided between his duty to his friends and his comrades and his moral problems with their goals. And at this point, you might want to really question Deerslayer's morality, that he kind of sits on his hands. He, he's not brave enough or he's not, I guess, insistent enough on his morality to stop them from taking the scalps. He just says, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, that's not me. But he's not going to really risk his own life and limb and situation to do that. And it might be understandable. You know, he's outnumbered too. He's also at war with the Huron. And he can't really afford to risk these comrades. Which, But that's exactly what he does in this chapter as well. By not intervening and stopping them, he ends up losing two important members of his, of his party. So the plan is essentially that they're going to go off and do this. They know Deerslayer is not going to help. But they go off and do this and they'll make loon sounds when they're needed. And there's a, some fascinating back and forth about the loon sounds here and which are real and which are fake. And, and there's a moment where he hears one and he's not sure if it's the actual humans making those sounds or if they're actual birds. And we get this long description of Deerslayer's time on the canoe waiting for this news from Hurry and Hutter. And it's like an hour and a half or two hours. And finally, he hears the loon sounds, but he's not sure if they're artificial or not. When a second sound is made, he sets off and he sees Hurry and Hutter have been captured by a large band of Huron. Deerslayer calls out to them and vows to protect the women. Hurry wants Deerslayer to wait at the castle, but Hutter assumes the castle will be attacked quickly, and basically his suggestion is that they flee and get out of Dodge. Um, but I don't know if, if this is a, a fault, if this is realistic, or if it's a fault of Cooper as a writer here. But there's this long conversation that goes on for pages while these men are captured by the Huron and Deerslayer's in the canoe kind of yelling. Oh, geez, sorry about that. I'm trying to get this episode done, but there's some sawing. I've been dealing with construction here for a long time. It's, it's, it's rather frustrating, but I'm almost done with this episode, so I, I just wanted to work through it. Um, anyways, what, what I was getting at is that there's this long conversation that goes on for paragraphs, and it's not just like yelling a line back and forth. Like there's page long kind of monologues back and forth and Deerslayer's on the canoe and the other men are on the waterfront captured. And it's, it just seems a bit unrealistic, but it's, it seems he had to convey this information to us in this debate. Um, but anyways, and then the weird thing in this chapter is that after, is after this news, he chooses to sleep in the canoe he doesn't go straight back to the castle now that's a bit odd but it sets up the next chapter and some important events that happen in the next chapter which couldn't have happened if he went back to the castle but anyways i don't know if that's just you know cooper's not a flawless writer as mark twain made clear to us um so the big theme here i think in this chapter the big thing to think about is is to the degree that deerslayer's morality kind of stops at the water's edge in this case sort of literally um he seems he sits by while hurry and hutter go to murder women and children and again this might be just the fault of of cooper as a writer uh wanting these situations like he wanted hutter and and hurry captured and you know this was the way to get him captured but it required deerslayer doing something that that might seem to us a little bit out of character and then he has him sleep in a canoe rather than go and protect these women and he's already established himself as this courageous moralistic individual who would go back immediately and, and try to help judith and hetty but instead he he sleeps in the canoe so that's a bit odd and it's a weird way to, to end this episode but that, that's the first hundred pages of of the deerslayer um, so i'll be back next time with the next part of the deerslayer and we'll, we'll see what happens with with hurry and hutter as they've been captured and and how Deerslayer manages the situation. We'll meet some new characters, uh, Chinjgatkuk and and Histahist will show up. So that's something we can look forward to. 
Um, but if you read the Deerslayer, if, uh, please leave your comments below. Um, was this a novel you had to read in in high school? Is it something you had to kind of bear through? Uh, have you ever, you know, what's your feelings on Cooper as a writer, as 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 a thinker? Uh, what what are, what are his views on Indians and race? I, I'd love to hear your your views on any of this this stuff. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this series on Cooper. So thank you again so much for listening. And I will be back uh, next time with with a little bit more of the Deer Slayer. Let Christian men take heart today. The devil's rule is done. Let no man heed the devil more, for Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all what 